Okay, grab your Bibles and flip to Colossians 1. We are going to look at the Christ hymn tonight, Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. And uh, this passage is uh, quite potent, so I'm really excited to, to spend our time on this with you. Colossians chapter 1, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, and I will pray and then we'll get right into it. Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20. These are the words of God. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, for through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father and Holy God, prepare our hearts to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and also do it. Through Christ our Lord, and amen. You can be seated. I want to begin tonight by simply giving you a brief reminder of where we've been so far, what we've seen so far in our study to Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. And you'll recall that the city itself was a quintessential Greco-Roman type of place, culturally speaking. There were idols in and around the city showcasing the various deities, and certainly there was a pluralistic impulse typical of this time and place. Uh, any gods will do, just don't claim exclusivity, okay? That, that was sort of the, the mantra in the Roman Empire. Moderately important, Colossae was situated in the region of Pergia, and the Greek and Roman gods, of course, were there, and they were a dime a dozen. The unique thing, though, about Colossae was the highly influential Jewish culture there. Unlike Philippi, Colossae was not a Roman colony. It had quite a lot of impact early on, but by the time Paul writes, the city itself really wasn't as prominent as it used to be back in its heyday. However, in this case, Jewish monotheistic beliefs were blended in with Greco-Roman culture, which made the situation in Colossae rather precarious for the devout Christians there. But a question emerges regarding our presuppositions surrounding this letter itself. What ideas exactly were the Apostle Paul and Timothy trying to bring to a halt? What was going on there? What was the heretical so-called Colossian heresy that Paul was trying to dismantle? Now, scholars debate this point, but it seems as though the main issue was a syncretistic religious pluralism. Same problem in America. <laughs> a syncretistic religious pluralism. That is, the Christians there would have been tempted to cook up a recipe with the ingredients of Christianity, Judaism, and pagan ideas about the world all rolled into one pagan dish. That was kind of what was happening. Not only did one encounter asceticism, or basically the self-abasing practices, asceticism was of course a temptation even for the early church, 
way past the Apostle Paul's time. But not only did you have that going on, um, but one would have had certain presuppositions about the powers and the principalities that govern the world. Think of angels and demons and Greek gods, etc. The powers and principalities out there. In fact, most Gentiles, for example, they were convinced that the stars that they saw every single night were somehow sharing in the deity, whatever the deity is, any deity, while uh, Jews, of course, during this time, they believed them to be strictly angelic beings. In my estimation, I think that the problem in Colossae was the same problem of all unbelieving thought that goes on in the world, namely the problem of integration and unity in the world apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll, sh as we'll see shortly. Think about cosmology and your belief about the universe and how things come into being and all of this, all the philosophies that go on in the world. The, if you don't have an integration and a unity that's in Christ, you have a lot of problems, and that, that's probably what was going on here. One, one scholar uh, wrote a letter. He summed it up with a short letter from the enemy. So th this kind of gives you an idea of perhaps of what Paul was dealing with. And so this is the letter to the Colossians from the enemy. It says, Dear Colossians, we know you are experiencing hardships. No doubt you are aware that there are evil spirits and powers that have authority over our mortal world. These powers prey on the weakness of human bodies and flesh. Thus, our world is fraught with cosmic chaos. We can offer, through knowledge, wisdom, and teachings, or traditions, that uh, we, we can offer, though, that we can protect you from these malevolent forces. By controlling, combating, and disciplining your own frail body, you can resist these powers. Circumcision and strict ritual Torah, Torah obedience are particularly effective in counteracting these hostile spirits. Once you have submitted yourself to such disciplines of the body, you will gain access to the celestial world, receiving divine wisdom, visions, and provisions to fight against the weaknesses of the flesh that the evil powers use against you. We can offer you the proper route to spiritual fullness and perfection." End quote. That's what the enemy was telling them. Paul is writing to combat that very impulse. Now note the recipe. You have pagan philosophy, no doubt influenced by Greek metaphysics. You think of Plato and Aristotle and the influence they had on the Western world. So you had pagan philosophy. You had Jewish legalism, which was, of course, influenced by a very strict Torah observance. And then you had early seeds of Gnostic mysticism. I remember going to Senegal, West Africa a few years ago and, and encountering the uh, going out to the tribal villages. And we went to this big tree and there were dead goats there that they had sacrificed and we came preaching uh, the God of the universe and Christ's forgiveness and I remember the tribal chief said wow your gods actually talk to you and it was kind of a funny moment for me wow yeah that's true but they had a worldview they had beliefs but it wasn't adding up for them now I mention all of this stuff here because the Apostle Paul he spends considerable time emphasizing the integral nature of the gospel the word of truth, which counters every single one of these false beliefs. What we understand, think of it this way, when we understand what Paul was combating, we can then see why Paul was writing. And when we understand that, we can learn how Paul wants us to live. That's kind of the nature of discerning scripture. 
In an age of increasing hostility towards Christianity, we have to remember that the preeminence of Christ goes before everything. The preeminence of Christ, the first place, the the top priority of Christ goes before everything. And what we have here tonight is this doxological hymn. It's considered to be one of the most Christ-centered, God-exalting passages in all of Holy Writ. Uh, It's as though Paul, while he's writing the letter, interrupts the conversation for just a minute to explain the resplendent grandeur of Jesus Christ, to talk about the beauty and the effulgence of, of, of Christ as He is supreme and preeminent in creation, that's verses 15 through 17, and in redemption, verses 18 through 20. So the purpose of this hymn, and in your Bibles, usually it's indented in a poetic form because it, it, it would have been an early hymn, The purpose of the hymn is to establish for the Colossians the superiority, the priority, and the preeminence of King Jesus in all things, in everything. He is the integration point of everything. He is the creator and the sustainer, the victor and the conqueror. Simply put, Christ is all. That is the Christ hymn. Let's look at our passage. Verse 15. Let's read it again. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The six-verse Christ hymn is incredibly dense in terms of its theology. There's a lot here. Jesus is the image, or the icon, that's the Greek word, of the invisible God. The divine personhood of Jesus is highlighted here for us. The new eschatological humanity, that's the church, is arranged and put together by this Jesus. In the incarnation, we find that God rolled up his sleeve, doing the work of sending Jesus in order to restore the image of God in man. So we have to think in terms of why did Christ come? He came for a lot of reasons, one of which was the restoration of the image of God in man. And he could only do so if he were the exact imprint and the image of God. So Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. That's the logic here from the Apostle Paul. We are reminded when we think of the word image, and especially the phrase image of God, we're obviously remembering Genesis, specifically Genesis 1 and 2. But we're reminded that Adam, Adam was made in the image of God. Now Jesus is the archetypal image of God. Of God. He's the effluence and the substance of the glory of God. Uh, think of God's glory embodied in Christ in the incarnation. So when Jesus came as King Adam II, he's the second Adam, the victorious Adam. Remember this paradigm in Scripture, Paul repeats it several times in Romans and 1 Corinthians and elsewhere. But uh, where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Where Adam had failed, Christ succeeded. So the language, of course, uh, the language of image is packed with overtones from the book of Genesis. As the pre-existent Son of God who has taken on flesh, 
Imaging the Father perfectly, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, which is not to say that Jesus was a created being like the heretic Arius believed and like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe today. Rather, Jesus is first priority in all things. He is the eldest son. Quite literally, that phrase could mean eldest son. He is the eldest son, the heir who received a double portion of the inheritance. So that's part of uh, the logic of Joshua and Joseph, some of the stories of the patriarchs, uh, this, this idea of the firstborn when Jacob tricked Esau. And being the firstborn me meant that you got a double portion of the inheritance. You got more than the next kid, that sort of thing. So Jesus is the firstborn in that sense. He received double portion. And when we talk about Christ being the firstborn of all creation, we're, we're not talking about time. We're talking about function and status. Christ is the Son of God. He is the Son that Adam was supposed to be. And He was also uh, the Son that Israel was called to be. Christ is supreme in terms of His rank. That's what He means by the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn is the ruler of, over creation. He's the priority of the creation in time itself. And thus, because of that, he has supremacy and primacy. He is Israel's great Messiah King. He is the world's true Lord and governor. Now, in verse 16, we learn that in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, irrespective of those visible and invisible things being thrones, he says, or dominions, or rulers, or authorities. It matters not what or who they are, their origins are owed to Christ because, he says in verse 16, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Through Christ and for Christ. With regard to the created order, Christ, the Supreme Son, has created it all by the power of His Word, simply speaking things into existence. He is the agent of creation, and according to Paul, Christ is the goal or the telos of creation. Now, when we ask a question like, well, why did God create the world? Our answer should be for his son's inheritance. Why did God create the world? Well, he created it for his son. He's the heir. He's the firstborn. He gets the inheritance. He gets the nations after asking the Father for him after his resurrection and his ascension to the throne. So that's the answer that why did God create the world? For his son, for his son's glory, to display the glory of God. The son who is the, the, the one who brought about creation through his word? Absolutely. But he's also the goal of creation. Beginning to end, it's for the glory of Christ. So if it's something that is created, then Jesus is the author, he's the creator. If it exists in this world, it is there because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So stars, moons, and men, all of it, it's his creation. Paul's Christological understanding of the world is centered on the preeminence of Christ and the fact that the universe exists for the sake of Jesus the Son. The totality of creation, the all things created, is only meaningful in terms of the Lordship of Christ. Note that if it's through him and for him, then everything in between only has meaning and significance because of who Jesus is. 
It's his lordship. The totality of creation, all of it, is meaningful because of Jesus. The whole universe lies at the feet of its king as the domain and the arena of his supremacy and authority. And that's why it's difficult to talk to Christians who don't think that Jesus has anything to say in the public square. Is he only in charge of space? Is he only in charge of the sun and the moon and the stars? Is this not his footstool? <laughs> of course he has everything to do with it. It's his. So we're, we're, everything lies at the feet of this king who exercises his authority in real space and real time. Any hostile powers like fallen angels who are at war with God, who attempt to hold the world in captive by sin, any of them, even they are subject to this master. Satan himself, subject to the master, doesn't have free reign. He's on a short leash. He's, he's a conquered foe. So Christ is the conqueror and he's the victor. And Paul's going to tell us that in Colossians 2.15. So uh, the Apostle Paul simply says that creation began with Christ and its goal and its end is Christ. It began with him and it's going to end with him. He's the alpha. He is the omega, the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. So Christ cannot be denied. He cannot be denied, nor can any created thing offer him up a bribe. No one is ultimately phlegmatic and impassive towards this king. It's not possible to be just eh about the, the king. It's not, a, it's not a position that anyone can be in. There's no neutrality in the world. So all things are subject to his rule and his reign, whether they like it or not. Don't, don't preach Christ to your unbelieving friends and family by assuming that they, you know, will you accept him to be king over you? No, he is king. You must bow before him. Don't, don't act like he's not king. So in the past, Christ was the agent of creation. In the present, he is the ruler to whom the entire world owes its allegiance and worship. And in the future, Christ's sovereign rule will encompass and subsume all things. That's verse 16. Powerful verse in Scripture. All of creation is headed towards Christ. Having highlighted the priority of this eldest son, Paul goes on to speak more of Christ's preeminence. Look at verse 17. He says, He is before all things. Note that word before, meaning Christ's origins are eternal. Christ, not chaos. Personality, not abstract idealism. Christ is before all things, a real person before everything, existing before all things. Christ, the uncreated eternal one, he holds all things together. Note that phrase. Now again, he, Christ is the creator. Because of that, he's also the sustainer. So think of it in terms of priority, beginning, end. Creation owes its origin to Christ. Creation is headed towards glory in Christ and judgment in Christ. But everything in between, he is the sustainer because he's before everything. He has priority. He holds, he, think of this like the, the preservation of the periodic table. Uh, uniformity and consistency in nature. Uh, the sun, the moon, the stars, water itself, the atom. Go to the smallest thing we know, protons, neutrons, electrons. Uh, the changes of the seasons. Everything we experience in this world, all of it goes back to Christ and His Lordship. 
He holds the atom together. He holds your immune system together. He holds all molecules together. He created it, and thus he sustains it. He made your heart, and he keeps it beating. Even when you sleep, which is mind-blowing to think about. None of us go to sleep. Okay, I'm going to keep myself alive here. No, he's in control of it all. Nothing in creation is autonomous. Nothing. The entire world is actively and presently sustained by his grace, which makes the whole climate change circus, the clown world we live in right now, makes it even more stupid and silly. He holds it all together. All of the created order rejoiced when Christ made it. If he stopped holding it together, if he stopped holding it together, it would crumble and disintegrate into utter agony, which is why Christ is worthy of all the glory. He holds all things together because he is the integration point. All meaning is derived from him. Moreover, the sovereign creator in verse 18, he has chosen to act in history. He's before, he's at the end, he sustains, but he's not just distant, he's near. In history, he is the head of the body, the church. Christ is a person, he's not an impersonal force, neither is the Father or the Holy Spirit for that matter. As the head, he is the source, no doubt, but the word really, when we talk about this being the head of the body, he is the one who constitutes his people. So no head, no body. That's kind of the idea here. Christ is the new Joshua. He is the leader of his people. The church is the new humanity. Christ is the new Adam. The church is the new Israel. Christ is the new Moses. Christ is Lord of the world, and he exercises his lordship in this lordship as the head. And he exercises it as the head and lord of the church. Though head of all things, the Lord over the whole world, he only has one body. He only has one body. That's us, the people of God, the universal church. Headship isn't impersonal Jewish wisdom or this Greek conception of the divine logos. Uh, the headship is Christ. He is the God-man, fully God, fully man. So Christ creates, Christ reconciles, that's his lordship activity, that's what he does, is he governs the world and intimately governs and sustains his church, his people. He's head of the church and he's the beginning, verse 18, the beginning, the firstborn, there's that word again, from the dead. And this is so he himself will come to have first place in everything. Uh, the word there for beginning is arche in Greek. And it means first principle, or it means the foundational source. Uh, in Aristotelian thought, it's the efficient cause. Uh, he is the beginning. He's the RK. Again, as the Son of God, he has priority. He has preeminence in both time and in rank. His resurrection, Paul says, was the first fruits of the future resurrection of the dead. And when the resurrection of Christ was accomplished, he was once again established in the world as supreme. The resurrection of Christ gave us something very important. That's why he calls it the firstborn, he calls Christ the firstborn from the dead. It was the resurrection that established the lordship of Christ in the world as the final conqueror of Satan, sin, and death. Uh, one scholar put it this way. He connects resurrection to salvation. He says, quote, Salvation is not escape from the created world through the release of an immortal soul encased in, in a body, that's Greek philosophy, 
or the liberation of the divine spark from its fleshly chrysalis, as in Gnosticism. Rather, salvation consists of the redemption of our bodies to live and abide in God's new world. And you can see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, end quote. So having first place in everything, being preeminent, means that authority and power and glory and honor and priority is subsumed and brought into Christ. Jesus is those things. That's who he is. Paul goes on to explain how the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is verse 19. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. That is the power, the attributes, the glory, the, the honor, all of that of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. The very nature and essence of God is present in Christ. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Paul's twice in this letter talking about this concept of the deity of God dwelling in Christ. So if it's God's, it's Christ's. That's the logic. If it's Christ, it belongs to God. Where one person is, like Jesus, there the other two persons of the Trinity are there, mutually present, mutually exhaustive of one another. So we see God in Christ. That's the logic. And the hymn closes by demonstrating the glory of Christ's work as the Redeemer we spoke of in verse 14. Note that here in verse 20. Christ's work was to reconcile all things to Himself. That's a bothersome verse for most of Christianity today. Because usually it's, well, Christ just reconciles a few people and that's it. No, He's reconciling. He has, in principle, reconciled all things to Himself. And in practice, that's ongoing. But the point is, all things have been brought back underneath His authority in time and in space. That's why we can speak of nations as belonging to Christ. Whether they've got it right, you know, confessionally or not. Ever since that resurrection Sunday morning, the new creation of the risen second Adam has been unfolding like a mustard seed growing in the world. So wherever the curse went, we're just saying that, joy to the world, right? Wherever the curse went, grace went further. Far as the curse is found, that's where the gospel is going, reconciling all things to himself. The territory of sin has been conquered by the resurrected son. Now, having spent the bulk of our time on basic, just exegeting the passage, we like to ask the question, how then shall we live? The basic ground motive, the foundational principle of Christianity consists of three things. The first is an integral and coherent creation order. So you think of creation, fall, redemption. That is, that's the ground motive. That's the, the foundation of, of, of all of our experience. That's the first thing. An integral and coherent creation order. Because if you talk to people today who are not believers, they are adamantly opposed to Christ. There is no integration other than what they want it to be. There is no coherence in the created order, ultimately, because even now it's the science, right? We're going to talk about that in a minute, but the science can be kind of whatever you want it to be. But we believe in an integral and coherent creation order. Second, we also believe in a radical fall into sin. Radical meaning the root. The sin touched the root of man, his, his heart, his thinking, 
all of his being, total depravity. And third, so we have an integral and coherent creation, a radical fall into sin, and third, we have this equally radical, meaning equally to the root, yet surprisingly glorious restoration, this restorative redemption in Christ Jesus. So creation, fall, redemption. That's the pattern of Scripture. That's the storyline. That's the entire that's the entire thing. It's the story of the world. It's the foundation of all truth in this world, mind you. All truth deals with that paradigm. And only when we grasp this foundation can we actually then make sense of, of the world, of this reality. So everything outside of this is, is a religiously directed corruption. All unbelieving thought is anything that's outside of creation, fall, redemption. It's, it's a religiously directed corrupt, corruption. It's, it's a putrid, phony lie. And in large part, grasping this reality is what Paul explains here in the, in the text. He describes to us that Christ, Christ is the indisputable arche. He is the foundation. All things must deal with Him and deal with Him on His terms. And who is He? He's the creator. He's the sustainer. Beginning to end. Christ is also the executive agent of God's kingdom rule. He's the totalizing principle, not the state, not Aristotelian metaphysics, not Jewish legalism, not German idealism, not Gnostic spiritualism, not this new paganism that's inculcating into our culture right now. None of that. It's not relativism embedded in this transhumanist movement. I want to deal with that here for a second. The past two years, um, government in the name of science is neither government nor science. That's my position, and I think I can argue that uh, pretty well. But in this transhumanist movement, it can be whatever the lever pullers want it to be. In some sense, the transhumanist movement can be described as scientism. Scientism. By this, we mean that there's, this there's an exaggeration attached to our theoretical assumptions about science or knowledge. That's what the Latin word for science means anyway. It just means knowledge. Now this exaggeration means that its place in life is assumed, it's assumed a priority that it should not possess. All right, so when we say it's an exaggeration, we're saying you are taking this scientism and you are making it the thing that dictates everything else. It, of course, has crossed its God-given boundary in many, many ways. But as an ex expression of apostate and rebellious man's religion, scientism places science at the center. So life, all of life is reduced to this new absolute. Dewey would have called it a reductionism. You reduce all of the world down to this, this category. Everything is science, even when they don't even play by their own rules. So, you know, science explains life. You know, Fauci beating the, I am science. Yeah. It's like, okay, God, man. <laughs> science explains life, they say. Science speaks. It's my favorite line. Science tells us. Where is he? Can I talk to him? <laughs> um, Aristotle, writing around 350 B.C., when he, uh, he opened and began his considerable considerable work metaphysics by stating that all men by nature desire to know or all men by nature desire knowledge 
And we would agree, sure, but I would more go with the German-born Thomas Akempis, who said, it's natural that man should desire knowledge. He's agreeing with Aristotle. And, and, but what doth knowledge avail him without the fear of God? Huh, now that's a question we could have used. Indeed, what does science give us if it doesn't start with the fear of God? So I want to zoom out here. Do you see the battle? Do you see the battle? Because we still, we have a culture that's not seeing clearly. What is it that has preeminence in the world, in this life? What is it that takes top priority? What is the RK? What is the Archimedean point? The thing that you know, the whole entire world pivots on. What is the principium? What is, who or what has priority in life that speaks to everything in life? And Rushdie taught us it's not whether but which. It's not whether we'll have something positioned at the center dictating everything else as the foundation, of course, but which, which center and foundation will we have? See, Christian theology and preaching, empowered by the Holy Spirit, unashamedly pronounces the Lordship of Christ in this world and in all the world. Not wishing Him to be the RK, not wishing Him to be the foundation, right? not wishing any of that, but instead declaring Him to already be that foundation. We're not voting for Jesus. We're not, we're not just trying to get him elected or anything like that. Like, oh, please, please accept him, please. We're not doing any of that. We're contending in the public square for the Jesus who is already enthroned. Christ is the foundation. And if, frankly, if Christianity is ever going to regain a foothold in this nation, we have to stop pretending that this isn't already the case. When things get tough, we're not apologizing for Jesus. Oh, yes, he is Lord, but rest assured, Mr. Science Dictator, Mr. Lockdown Extraordinaire, he's Lord only of the church. And his lordship, just so you know, it's not a threat to you. He, his lordship really only extends to my thoughts, which are nice and respectable, of course. <laughs> Stop apologizing. If Christ is Lord then scientism is not. If Christ is enthroned, then the state is not permitted to sit there. If Jesus Christ has been, been crowned king, and he has, then no one else is authorized to rule in his place. Due to the radical fall into sin we spoke about minutes ago, moments ago, everyone is in the search of some, some foundation, right? Some, some RK, some, some coherent principium, this, this principle of life that is where we can build everything out. This integration point. Everybody is searching for that. And they want it to explain all of reality. They want to build something on it. That's what the BLM wokesters attempt to do. That's what the lobby groups attempt to do. That's what all political aspirations attempt to do. They're trying to build a foundation on someone other than Christ. Fallen men, ignoring the integration of creation in Christ, will always and without fail with a religiously directed heart, bent on apostasy, mind you, they will always attempt to put someone, something, anyone, anything, in as a placeholder over and above Christ's totalizing lordship. And that's the radical nature of sin. And that's what we're up against. A radical, to the root, nature of sin that wants something to be the thing, other than Christ, something or someone to be the thing that we point to, to be the foundation, 
to, to sing us lullabies at night so we can rest comfortably in our apostasy against Christ. But Christ has come, not to condemn the already condemned world, but to redeem it, all of it. Christ is the beginning, and thus he is the middle, he is the end, too. He is the beginning, and thus he is the ruler of all integration, all coherence, all supremacy. Everything flows from the working order of his expansive, extensive, and elaborate kingdom. His work on the cross, followed up by his victorious resurrection, has unleashed upon the world the power of the word of God. And friends, all of life is religion. Don't let anyone tell you to compartmentalize that about you. All of life is religion. Religion, by definition, is man's response to the Word of God, and it's either belief or it's unbelief. It's faithfulness or it's apostasy. Those are the categories. That's it. And the Word of God discloses to us the religious nature of all of life, like it or not. Belief or unbelief. A godly heart directed towards godly things or an ungodly heart directed towards ungodly things. Moreover, the reality of all of life is situated here. That's why we say all of Christ for all of life. The only totalizing authority in the universe is Christ and His kingdom. Not the state, not the church, not ecclesiocracy, and not any, any individual and Christ is, is not simply king over the church. He's king over all things, all peoples, all nations. This Christ hymn will not permit any sort of rival authorities attempting to usurp his kingdom, nor will it allow anyone to attempt to truncate or diminish or curtail his authority, relegating it just to heaven. What a, what, I think what's, what's glorious about the gospel message, and certainly as Advent begins today, uh, what's glorious about the gospel message is, is that Christ puts everything that was stained by sin back together. Christ puts it all back together, all of it, making all things new. Correspondingly, we have this individual reconciliation and this corporate reconciliation, and of course we have a cosmic reconciliation. That's all here in our text. Through Christ, all things are reconciled to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Individuals are restored and made new. You can be made new. You come to Christ by faith through grace alone. You can be made new as well, restored and made new. The church, the people of God on a corporate level, is restored and made new. And as history unfolds, Christ makes the entire universe restored and made new. And since man plays a vital role, don't miss this, you play a vital role in the ordering of creation, our gospel message is to aid in this restoration project through the preaching of the gospel and the ordering of our lives, our families, our churches, and our cultures in accord with this revealed law word of God. See, the gospel is a grand renovation project. That's what it is. It's a grand renovation project. The world is disheveled. There's, there's asbestos on the walls. You know, there, the, half the building is, is falling down and condemned. And we're brought out of this, made new, cleaned up. We're given, you know, what we need to go into this house and say, okay, 
we need to tear it down and put the foundation in place the way it should be. And we can build from that. And we can build from that. It's a re-creation. The gospel is a renewal. The gospel is a restoration. And grace doesn't perfect nature. It renews creation. The Christ hymn is about a cosmic Christ stooping low in order to redeem and restore a marred creation. And on this first Sunday of Advent, we celebrate his glorious place of preeminence in all things. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this hymn that you inspired and carried along the Apostle Paul to pen this hymn that really is so rich and dense with a vivid picture of Christ our King. We're thankful that you, Lord Jesus, took on human flesh and died the death we deserve to die and, and was raised to new life. We're grateful, God, that you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, had orchestrated this from before time. We thank you. We're humbled by it. And we pray that you would embolden your church to live for your glory. May we, the church, be in obedience to the head, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the beginning. Father, we ask in our culture that you would bring us that repentance. Help us to order our lives, our hearts, our families, this church. Help the church worldwide to grasp the truth of this expansive and beautiful passage that tells us of the glories of Christ, the kingdom of Christ. As we come to your table, God, would you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.